0: Hi, welcome to Offscript. I'm Zach Lewis.
1: And I'm Dr. Draper.
0: Today we're taking a look at the new Robert Eggers film, The Lighthouse. We're also taking a gander at Bong Joon-ho's Parasite, a South Korean film that's been picking up some steam in the States and at award festivals. We're going to talk about Disney moving Fox films into its vault and not letting people see them, which is a weird thing, but we've got more to come on that in the middle of our reviews. And before we get to all of that... We need to talk about the news. Our first story this week, El Camino, a Breaking Bad movie, uh, was watched by more than 25 million households in its first week, says Netflix in a very casual tweet that they dropped last Wednesday. Andy, any hot takes on this?
1: Well, it shows that there was a real demand for more Breaking Bad material. Uh, We both saw it here for the show. Um, People are still into the show and they're interested in stories. And again, I've predicted that we might see some more Breaking Bad films. And this is definitely a good sign that we might go in that direction.
0: It's really something to look at whenever you see numbers like this. Because it's not just, hey, here's how many people uh, watched it in households. It's more specific data based on... Uh, who's who owns what accounts and who's watching what. Netflix broke it down further. They said uh, about 36% of the film's average minute audience over its first three days were younger adults in the 18 to 34 demographic. That's the biggest majority of people who are watching that. It's almost it's heavily male uh, with almost 40% comprised of men 18 to 49. So Netflix can very clearly see who's watching this movie. They can see where it's being successful. They can track locations where people in the country are watching it. It's fascinating to see how they can kind of pivot their entertainment around what people want and tailor that experience to you. It's one of the things streaming does that cinemas don't have.
1: Yes, and what I think is really interesting is that the uh, the twenty five million, it, that's twenty five million individual accounts. So that's not you know taken into account password sharing or just someone coming over to watch the uh show so like the real number that actually watch must be much much bigger um which is is really impressive
0: right there's people that got together for watch parties for breaking bad i would assume they did the same for this this also doesn't include theaters as far as we know unless they counted each theater screening in the country as one household um you know this doesn't include the 30 people that saw it with andy and i in a movie yeah game. exactly so, it's an interesting stat, right? On the one hand, it tells a lot about our audience. On the other hand, we don't know everything. Um, I, you know, Netflix is going to do what Netflix does, but it's worth kind of keeping in mind that whenever you watch a movie on a streaming service, all that data goes somewhere. Somebody's keeping track of that, and, and, and that adds up to, ideally, better entertainment and better films and movies like El Camino a Breaking Bad movie. So, I guess it all comes out in the wash. Our next story, Netflix reportedly testing a new variable playback feature that will show a film... At one point five speed, I think Andy and I both found this headline at the same time this week <laughs> and stuck it on the uh, stuck it on our outline. So, Andy, do you want to take
1: this one? We were both ra- outraged at the disrespect for cinema. That's right. Um, yeah. Well, my initial reaction was like, oh, you know, people have even shorter attention spans. Even though you can watch streaming whenever you want on your schedule at your time and pick what you want, and you people aren't patient enough. Uh, to watch it but you know upon further research there is you know some some people have good reasons uh for watching a little bit faster um faster speed for instance uh, when people are maybe learning a second language, uh, and they're doing a lot of reading of subtitles, it's faster if the um, you know, the speed is up. Same thing uh, for people that are hard of hearing. Sometimes they like to watch a little bit faster because again they're they're reading on the subtitles. Uh, and again, this is I think uh, an option more for mobile users, not not the the general app for like uh, you know the at home theater. So it's interesting.
0: Yeah, and you're right on the money with mobile users. Uh, Where this popped up were users on Google's operating system, Android. They said that their Netflix would have an option to play playback video at variable speeds. You could play it at double the speed you normally watch it or triple the speed you normally watch it. The idea is, of course, inspired by things like podcasts and audiobooks, where you've always been able to move the needle on audio formats and listen to it a little faster than normal. But when it comes to visual, when it comes to video and film... Usually we kind of stray from that. We don't try to watch things faster than they're intended. This had a big outcry on social media from a lot of directors. A lot of directors and other film, film people <laughs> came out against this and said, look, you're, you're stepping on art here. This is a bad idea. You know what I mean? Like film is a very nuanced thing. Same with television. Aaron Paul came out against this, uh, which was a big step for him uh, Netflix-wise. Uh, you know, it's, it's a weird thing for a bunch of people to rise up and go, nope, nope, this is just genuinely a bad idea. The question I have for you, Andy, is, is it actually a bad idea?
1: You know, I don't really think it is. At the end of the day, it's optional. You're not forcing anyone to watch at a faster speed. So, I mean, th- there's no harm, no foul done in, in allowing someone an option to watch the film a little bit differently than maybe uh, you would have. And like I said, there's a lot of reasons f- uh for why people uh, would want to do that. And like I said, they're they're not it's not like they're slowing the or sorry, speeding the films up and making you watch them at that speed. They're it's completely optional.
0: Right. And for every director out there who's frustrated by this, remember they're testing this on mobile platforms where you don't want people watching movies anyway, right? You don't want somebody watching your cool new movie on their phone. But if they're gonna, why not play it back at the speed they want? The one thing that really sticks in my craw on this is if I was talking to somebody who said, "Oh yeah, uh, the new uh, Robert Eggers film, The Lighthouse," I watched it on Netflix, on my phone at double speed. I would argue they almost didn't watch it. So it's yeah. a weird, yeah, it's a weird thing. Like it's a weird thing to try to define how we watch a film, and if you watch it faster or or, or slower, maybe than normal. So I don't know. R- that's our yeah.
1: Reason. Like I said, to me, that that's no different from saying, you know. Well, you shouldn't watch a movie at home. You should watch it in the theater. Like it's the same thing. You're 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 putting ha- your opinion of how f- art and media should be absorbed or uh, experienced on someone else. It's a good
0: point. That actually makes a lot of sense. So I don't know. we'll, we'll see what happens. I I think based on the social media outcry, Netflix probably pretty scared of this idea. But um, who knows? Maybe it'll show up. And our last story this week: Star Wars setback, Game of Thrones duo David Benioff and D.B. Ice exit the new star wars trilogy uh this is some big news rock rocked some boats uh especially for those of us who didn't like the ending of game of thrones because we all like to blame that on star wars no well, they couldn't do it because they were too tied up with star wars now it's not happening any Uh uh, any thoughts on this
1: well it's really interesting because this was announced actually back in i think 2017 or uh, 2018, that they would be doing this new Star Wars trilogy, and that was pretty exciting then. But then, of course, Game of Thrones finished and didn't finish strong, and there were a lot of fans upset with that. And then all of a sudden they said, well, we don't want these people working on on Star Wars. Um, (laughs) So it's really interesting how fan fandoms can turn around specifically these big you know kind of toxic uh, fandoms Um, they allegedly are the reason that they backed out is because they have a nine figure deal with Netflix and they want to focus on whatever that is Um, but I think there's more to the story I'm I'm reminded of what uh, James Mangold who directed Logan said about um, you know these big Giants franchises where he was like no no directors don't want to be near them because the fans are so reactionary and so toxic and they'd they'd just rather not deal with them because of you know everyone's gonna hate it or at least half the people that see it are are gonna hate it and it's uh, and there's a number of other artistic uh, restraints when you work on a property like that and they would just rather not
0: before I comment on these guys and what they're doing uh, I do want to just talk about Star Wars for a second because I want to get to them but uh, they did have a release date for this trilogy that seems to be just up in the air now Um, it's weird because this was supposed to be the next the next thing following our our Star Wars finish here after uh, The Mandalorian I think Um, but now this trilogy just may not happen or if it happens they might have to find a director there's a lot of other Star Wars projects going on there's The Mandalorian there's this Ewan McGregor series they're supposed to do Uh, Disney Plus is going to drive some things towards the IP but it's weird that like they pretty much announced like we're doing this thing and now suddenly they're not it makes me Mm -hmm. feel like maybe whoever's at the controls isn't doing too good of a job
1: well, it, and it reminds me of, I mean, there's been, there has been tons of talk of Kathleen Kennedy being replaced, um, specifically after the, the last Jedi, although that was still a very profitable film. So it's, I'm, I'm not sure why people are expecting that, but there's some rumors of that Kevin Feige from who's been the, the kind of over, overseeing all the Marvel production would take over, uh, Star Wars, um, but we'll we'll see. None of that has really happened. What actually this excites me about is that this means that Ryan Johnson's trilogy might <laughs> might be bumped up because his trilogy, his he was going to do a new trilogy and he was going to c- come after the the the, D- the DB uh, sorry the D and D. Um, trilogy so he might be moved up which I enjoy because that means lots of salt from Star Wars
0: fans (laughs) which you're just all about on the internet Mm -hmm. right
1: That's right.
0: Uh, one more footnote on this before we move on to the lighthouse Uh, regarding David Benioff and D.B. Weiss man are these guys like bent on burning bridges with public like perception because people already think they trashed Game of Thrones to jump to a big Star Wars deal and now you're jumping out of Star Wars to jump to a bigger Netflix deal like you're you're kind of just torching, blazing a trail, I guess.
1: Yeah, I mean, from from what I saw, um, people seemed to be pretty happy that they were, and this is just from Reddit comments. Everyone seemed to be happy that they weren't going to be a part of this because of how Game of Thrones ended. You know, a lot of people were saying setback. This is the opposite of a setback. People uh, you know. If, yeah, I mean the the comments were, were brutal. So I I don't think this is really going to hurt them. And um I mean I think that they're fantastic storytellers and I think they're going to be great at whatever they do and if it's not Star Wars that's completely fine with me.
0: I'm I'm not surprised at all that people are so defensive about Star Wars that they're like, "Oh, thank God these quitters aren't a part of my precious series anymore." Like, come on. I think I think Star Wars had some potential to go in maybe some strong directions with these guys at the helm, same with with Rian Johnson. Like Who knows what it would have turned out to be. It's funny how the internet can just immediately be like, no, no, good, we're better off without him, you know? Yeah. Uh, Nothing to get in the way of our our very, very precious Star Wars. And with that, we should move on to our first film of the show. Uh, Before we jump into this one, because I'm going to be taking the summary, um, man, Andy, what a fun week at the movies. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Uh, I'm excited to talk about both of these films. Uh, Let's jump into... Uh, Robert Eggers' *The Lighthouse*. Tell me, what's a timberman want with being a wiki?
1: Just
0: looking earn a living, just like any man. Starting new. On the run. So *The Lighthouse* is a story of Ephraim Winslow and Thomas Wake lighthouse wikis or lighthouse caretakers uh, off the coast of New England somewhere uh, in, I want to say the 1800s. I'm not sure it ever actually declares a time mm-hmm. uh, Robert Pattinson plays a frame Winslow our main character uh, Willem Dafoe Defoe plays Thomas Wake uh, Wake is an older beleaguered uh, wiki he's he's sailed the seas for years and he's he's got a big old bushy beard he's got a real thick accent he's seen it all and he's the caretaker of this lighthouse Robert Pattinson plays a frame Winslow his new caretaker who's very new to the seas he comes from Canada uh, in up, up where the timber is as they say in the film He's got a very New York accent. Uh, He is new to this whole thing, and the two of them are locked in this lighthouse on an island, or they're just on the island, I should say. They're not actually locked in the lighthouse, uh, for four weeks together, and they have to get along. Uh, The film is iconic, I think, for its presentation. It it is in a... 119 by 1 ratio, which is almost perfectly square. Uh, it was shot on very old lenses and black and white film. It was made in, in an authentic way as possible to present uh, the story of these two men kind of hanging on to each other and their sanity on the edge of the world. Uh, Andy, what did you think <laughs> of The Lighthouse?
1: I was absolutely blown away by this movie. I, I did not know what to expect. I know we were both very excited to go see it. Um, and I knew that it was, you know, another auteur at work. But it, it was really pretty mind-blowing in a lot of ways. The uh, the the story, the symbolism, the cinematography, the acting. Like, these are incredible performances by both actors, um, especially by Willem, Willem Dafoe. And there's so much in there. I've been asking myself, you know, what's this about? And I've been reading articles and everyone's... Cause there's a lot of things that are fairly plain and straightforward. And then there's lots and lots of symbolism and lots of ambiguity to, uh, kind of talk, talk about and, and surmise afterwards. And so, yeah, I really loved it. I was really blown away.
0: Yeah. I, I feel the same way. I, I was stunned by how much I enjoyed this movie. And I remember saying on the show, I was so excited. I was worried. I was, I was overexcited and then I was going to be disappointed because I was, I was way over the moon about how good it was going to be. Um, I didn't feel that way at all. I, I was incredibly pleased with this movie. I was I was glued to the screen. Uh, being that it only has two characters in it, it is very much a character drama. And watching these two men bounce off each other with this incredible chemistry, uh, while also trying to stay sane in an environment where most would not, uh, is fantastic. Like, this movie really takes you on some twists and turns I kind of left the summary uh vague intentionally the Mm -hmm. less you know about where it's going the better there's a reason the trailers are vague um man what a ton of fun uh I'm excited to talk about it so I think the first place to kind of get into this is our characters right right Uh, Robert Mm -hmm. Pattinson and Willem Dafoe what did you think of them
1: um, re- really incredible performances, but as far as the, their their characters, so Robert Pattinson is a very like he's much younger than Willem Dafoe's character, and he's kind of the the lackey, like he's going to be, he gets ordered around, he has to do all these kind of like manual labor and and hard hard and dangerous chores and um, he's not allowed to uh, attend the light (laughs) like Willem Dafoe is very protective of the lighthouse of the light itself in the lighthouse I mean only he kind of works it and guards it Uh, and and they're very different Uh, he doesn't want to uh, the younger uh, Ephraim Winslow he like he doesn't want to drink. The in early scene they they sit down for a meal and uh Willem Dafoe keeps trying to get him to to drink and you know drink come drink with me let's have a toast and he just he won't for for the longest time and they they kind of go back and forth and he kind of slowly uh, breaks he's like okay there's a whole lot of like gaslighting like that in the, in the movie by the old, older character of like this is what you should be doing listen to me I'm old and experienced how dare you
0: Right, you've you've got these two characters bouncing off each other, uh, in such an—it's like it's like an odd couple comedy, right? Except. It's not all that funny for that long and starts to get real serious. Uh, And these two are are just stuck with each other um, with few outside forces other than kind of their own delusions to guide them. Uh, Willem Dafoe's character looks down on young Winslow. He he thinks of him as maybe a younger version of himself, right? Like a young lad trying to get into it. And so he has him kind of doing all the physical labor and you're going to listen to me and you're going to do what you're told. And and maybe someday you'll, you'll have a big lighthouse like this one I watch. Um, Winslow, on the other hand, played by Pattinson, looks at Defoe as, as a drunk and an old man <laughs> who's washed up and doesn't know what he's you know he's he's babbling he doesn't know what he's talking about and he's certainly not <laughs> yes. helping with the absurd amount of physical labor required to keep this place running on this rock that is just beaten bat- like beaten by the waves, uh, battered was the word I was looking for battered by the waves constantly. Uh, the weather is terrible in this film. Yeah, so but... <laughs> already like they, they they have this odd mutual respect for each other, but at the same time. They've got problems with each other, and and it really makes this interesting kind of acquaintance-friendship-rivalry thing happen all at once, and again, there's nobody else for them to bounce off of. It's just the two of them, so they're constantly running into each other and at odds uh, in some way.
1: Yeah. Well, you mentioned the weather, and that really reminds me of uh, the setting. Uh, which I think we, we should talk uh, about that. we yeah. should get into. So there, there's kind of some locations. Yes, they're on a, at a lighthouse, but there's kind of some important locations within that. There's the lighthouse itself, um, which has this big spiral staircase that goes up to to the top where um, Winslow is constantly. He he really wants to be up there. And Defoe is like, no, I'm the one. I'm the one who tends the light. And then they they have their their very small quarters where they where they eat and sleep and they, you know, they, they, it's a very small room where they share beds and then they, they have to eat like at the same table, very, very tight. Uh, And then you have just kind of the, the Island, the little Island that they're on itself. Um, is, is kind of another part of the setting. That's where a lot of these, uh, uh, there's a whole thing with seagulls, there's the sea itself, there's, uh, you know, different chores that have to be done around around the, the little island. And so it, it really makes you feel like you're there, like you feel wet, like you feel <laughs> like the, the wind is blowing in, in your face. Like they did an incredible job of, of just kind of creating this this little island and really thrusting you in the world.
0: Yeah, and we should talk about why it feels that way. Um, when they shot this movie, I, I you know I did a little looking into it because of. The presentation and how it looks, and again, they they wanted it to be feel really authentic. So when they shot this movie, they went up to Canada, oddly enough, even though uh, it's supposed to be set in New England, uh, and they filmed off of these rocks off the coast, like just way out there. And they 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 built a lighthouse uh, for the movie. They ended up tearing it down after it's not still there, so it's not a it's not a it's not a existing structure like this is. But a lot of it shot on location, the outside stuff anyway. Most of the indoor stuff was shot on sound stages nearby, um, but. The outdoor stuff feels so visceral. The weather is just pounding these guys in this island. And according to the crew and Robert Eggers in in, in interviews in a recent AMA did just the other day, um, that was almost all genuine. They said they, they rarely, if ever, needed a wind machine or <laughs> waves yeah. or rain or anything. And those guys just got hammered. And they shot it in April and May of 2018. So it was probably pretty chilly. Uh, and, man, appa- apparently Willem Dafoe and Robert Pattinson, like, they were struggling out there. It was oh, rough. Yeah. yeah. Um, and
1: Because
0: <laughs> because yeah. you get so sucked into the movie, like, you kind of forget, like, oh, yeah, that they, they might have to use a rain machine for this shot. Like, because it just looks so legit. Like, they're just constantly on this coast just getting hammered by waves and ice water. Like, oh, it's brutal.
1: Mm-hmm um we we mentioned we don't want to talk about the plot uh uh too much but the, i think we should touch on it just a little bit that it's you know we we start on this island with these two men and we start with you know tension between them because we have the old guy who's in charge versus the young guy who's just uh they're trying to make a living um so we have a lot of tension in the beginning and the whole film is kind of a descent in into madness which we if kind of I figured from, from the trailers. Um, and so we get to see that and we, um, I was going to say that there's, it's not the kind of movie that is particularly scary. Like it's kind of, it's been billed as a horror movie, but it's not like there's not jump scares. There's not, it's more of a psychological kind of film.
0: Yes. Uh, I was, I was kind of thinking the best way to describe that without talking about spoilers for this film. Um, cause it'd be great to talk spoilers for this movie, but that's not what we're doing here. Uh, I would liken it to it reminded me a lot of something like The Shining, right? Like not yeah. it, it is it is not like a, a a gore fest or anything. It's not too visceral that way. It's very psychological. It's a whole lot of build up and there's a lot of imagery, I think that that leads to that hard R rating that it has, but it's not, yeah. It's it's not like a it's not nightmare fuel or anything. It's just kind of a movie that you just kind of turn over in your head a few times, um, which I enjoyed. Uh, I want to talk about the look of the sound stages as well. Man, mm-hmm. this the, the the interiors in this movie are so tight and claustrophobic and dark all the time. Uh, rarely are they filming inside during the day because if it's if, if there's daylight, the guys would be outside working. That's what you do, right? At night, you're inside, you're eating, you're drinking, you're sleeping. Like, that's what's going on. Um, so they film inside these just dark cab- cabins and, and hallways, and it's so dark. And and the film is in black and white. Like I said, they, they shot it on old stock. And they shot this movie on, on film so dark. It's like double X black stock or something. I was reading about this last night. That for, for lighting the film they had to really crank up the brightness so it would come across on right. screen in a lot of these shots these actors couldn't see each other because the light was so <laughs> bright in front of them and and on 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 screen it looks great it looks so great and genuine and feels good but um, it's just hard to believe how many technical challenges they had to overcome to make that happen uh, and it totally pays dividends it works great
1: right this is part part Partially why the uh, um, the ratio is what I'm thinking of is also really important is it makes the the more square ratio makes everything look really tall. You know, you don't have like it's, – it's not a wide shot. It's a very tall shot. And so when they're in places like, you know, the, the quarters where they sleep, they, they, it makes it feel more claustrophobic or where they eat. Or especially when they're in the lighthouse going up these cramped stairs, it makes everything look, look so cramped but also very, very tall. Like our actors look larger than life because you get a, a longer – you know, head to toe kind of shot or you like from shot from the knees, knees up.
0: And the cinematography really has to kind of, tighten the screws on what you're gonna see in the shot because you don't have a big wide frame. You don't have that huge movie theater screen of a canvas to kind of paint your picture for your audience. It's very tight. So, in a lot of shots, you're looking at something that's gonna be more like a Wes Anderson film than it is like a cinematic film like The Witch because the camera's just gotta look straight on at what's happening. It's very very perpendicular, it's very deliberate. Like, here's our character in the middle of the frame and here's what's happening, because you don't have enough room on screen to really put things apart, it's just very tight and claustrophobic all the time, and it really pulls you into that experience. Um, I do want to talk a little bit about just their individual performances. Um, uh-huh. I, I, and I know I talked about the characters a lot, but man, Pattinson uh, does a fantastic job of holding the role together. Willem Dafoe might might do it better, honestly, uh, as as this very old beleaguered wiki. Dafoe takes on this incredibly authentic accent and he delivers these really powerful monologues there's a few of them in the film um where it kind of explains something in a lot of detail or maybe expresses frustration uh it's it's very intense all the yeah. time. <laughs> he goes on a, uh, on
1: a couple of of rants that are really epic and there there's one um That that's that I that I really like. Where Pattinson's complaining about his um, uh, like the amount of work he's having to do and and Willem Dafoe comes back with like you'll do what I tell you and you'll like it because I'm the one who decides who you get paid uh, but he does it delivers it in this incredible like minute and a half monologue and there's there's so much of that throughout the movie it's just it's unbelievable and you know people have been talking so much about Joaquin Phoenix and his performance as the Joker and Oscar this and, you know uh, Willem Dafoe's gonna like if he doesn't win for this role then it, it's like it's by far the best performance I've seen all year.
0: Yeah, and, and I think they they did a lot of work to make that happen. Uh, the two of them and their, and our director Robert Egger spent a lot of time in rehearsals, which apparently funny fun funny story. These two actors being very different different men. Uh, Defoe is all about rehearsals; he wants to rehearse it a million times till it's perfect. Uh, Pattinson, on the other hand, is the exact opposite. He felt like if we did rehearsals, it would. Take away from my like genuine performance on screen because I'm overthinking it. You know, I'm, I'm just uh-huh. trying to I'm trying to follow a routine rather than do what feels natural and act. Um, apparently, the two of them really struggled with that uh, <laughs> during during the shoot. They didn't talk a whole lot because they wanted to kind of really stay in character and kind of do their thing. And then afterwards, supposedly now they're good friends. But uh, man. It, it it really pays off. Like these two bounce off each other in such a fascinating way, and they're so different. They come from such different walks of life, but like man, it just, they they go together so well in this movie, in this odd buddy cop uh, kind of <laughs> yeah. chemistry that totally works. Um, before we kind of wrap things up, we should talk about the soundtrack. In fact, like you can probably mm-hmm. jump in a little bit more than, than me on that.
1: Yes i I really like the the soundtrack. I'm I'm actually kind of forgetting a lot of it now, but I remember in the moment, um, really liking it again, very similar to like how I, I like the soundtrack in the Joker. It's very moving, very string heavy, very much about, uh, you know, it's not like there's themes or things you're going to hum. It's, it's more about depicting the mood in, in the moment. Uh, and th- there's this big, and again, the soundtrack bleeds into just the sound design itself. There's this, uh, kind of recurring a uh, sound of a foghorn from like the, the ship that c- kind of comes in and out and that it, it blares and that kind of gets mimicked in the sound or sorry the score itself
0: yeah our, our cinematographer our cinematographer our composer I just had his name up and lost it apparently he is very familiar with a lot of different like a wide range of instruments and for this film he just like the way they shot it wanted to use stuff that was genuine so they're using old foghorns to produce sounds and really old instruments to like really get things that feel period appropriate And the soundtrack works so well because it's so much stronger uh, in response to the limited visuals. Um, You should go see this movie in a theater. If possible, like don't, mm-hmm. don't wait for it to come home. Uh, you want to watch this in a movie in a theater where the sound is very robust because man, that foghorn just tears right through you. Yeah. And as it, as it wears on our characters throughout the film, as they hear it over and over, like you really start to feel that with them, that frustration of just like, oh my God, that thing is so loud and so unnatural. It's just such, it's such mm-hmm. an odd sound um, that it, it really, it really bites and it's got a, it's a, a lot of charm to it. Um I I do want to talk about I I don't I don't know if there's a, a good way to kind of talk about the the spiral in this film in a, in a very broad way. Uh well I I kind of wanted our to characters th- go on a bit of a, a, a bit of a journey, I should say, like every mm-hmm. character does, right? You have to you have to overcome some obstacles to arrive at the end of the film.
1: Mhm. Well, I I wanted to tie that into uh, kind of themes and meanings uh okay. or like symbolism which uh, so that's one thing if you haven't seen it yet, uh, there's lots of symbolism in in the film itself. There are you know, there's themes of water, of identity. There's lots of ambiguity. Like I said, I've been thinking a lot about what is this film <laughs> actually about, and I don't, don't want to go too much into it. But there's a lot to think about. There's a lot to see. There's this whole thing with uh, seagulls and um, Thomas Wake. The Willem Dafoe's character is incredibly superstitious about a number of things. He's like, don't don't hurt the seagulls. Don't do this. Don't do that. He's 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 a man of the sea, and he's very much. Uh, superstitious that way there's um, as we've seen from the trailer there's a thing with mermaids and there's a lot going on in this film it's about a a lot of things Um, so just you you have to really pay attention there's a whole thing uh, there's allusions to Greek mythology uh, that are quite strong as well there's so much in here a lot to figure out and when you uh, you know, I read, I've also read some interviews with Robert Eggers and he's like, he doesn't really have solid answers for when people ask It's like, it's a lot of it is up to, uh, ambiguity or into, a, or interpretation.
0: Yeah. There's a lot of throwbacks in this film. Um, not only to, yeah, things like Greek mythology, but also to, uh, classic, classical film, uh, and old black and white pictures. There's classical paintings, uh, that are attributed to in this film. There are modern films that are pay tribute to The Shining, in particular. Um, there, there's <laughs> one scene that's very reminiscent of that. Somebody pointed out on Reddit there was a scene that comes right out of The Big Lebowski, which followed Robert <laughs> Eggers saying in an AMA that, that uh, a film that he not a lot of people would know he's about is The Big Lebowski, and it's like, oh wow, like that's that seems to be almost a tribute, you know. Um, there's a lot going on under under the hood of this movie that all comes together to make this really, really grand experience about a very small situation with two very small men on a, on a, on a very small rock. Um, really outstanding for, for a 90 minute runtime. It didn't feel too long. Like it didn't feel like it overstayed its welcome. Um, and, and this, this kind of spiral, like I said, this kind of, you know, journey our characters go on, it, it starts off so subtle And before you know it, you're on the tracks, and you're going down the hill, and you can't stop, and it's great, and Mm -hmm. and I I really enjoyed it. It it is uh, a tremendous movie. Anything else you want to talk about before we get to recommendations?
1: (laughs) No, I think I'm ready.
0: Andy, would you recommend The Lighthouse?
1: Absolutely, this is one of the best movies I've seen all year, and it's one of those that we had a lot of anticipation for it, and it blew us away even more. Which, and that's a really rare thing to do. Um, I think this is a new classic. I think this is a film you could watch a hundred times and still have questions about its meanings and its themes and, and its characters. So, highly, highly recommend.
0: I'm in the same boat. Uh, this movie's tremendous. Uh, it's really good. It's not for everybody. I think there's there's a large group of uh, a large chunk of the population that would not be into this movie at all. They would think it's super lame. I think you have to watch it under certain conditions. If you watch it at home with the lights on, you're probably going to think it's dumb. Like you really got to get into the zone for this movie. Almost like I would say something like The Shining or how I felt about last year's Mandy. Like get, if you if you have the opportunity to watch this go see it in a theater and if you can't, watch it at home with the lights off, late at night with your phone far away and just get pulled into like what this movie's doing and I promise you won't be disappointed. It's a ton of fun. And with that, we should move on to our next segment. I'm going to be taking the headline on this. Uh, This is The Death of Cinema. So this week we're talking about Disney, just like we always talk about Disney or Netflix or some other streaming service, but we're not talking about Disney+. Plus. We're talking about Disney's acquisition of 21st Century Fox and specifically many of the films they now have ownership over, specifically distribution rights. How this came about is the month of October, right? Spooky season. Mm-hmm. A lot of retro theaters and a lot of like older theaters will do retro screenings and throwbacks of old horror films. And apparently, a lot of theaters that have been doing old screenings of movies like The Omen from 1976 and Cronenberg's remake of The Fly starring Jeff Goldblum, uh, suddenly they can't get prints of those to screen. And they can't get DVDs to run them and sell tickets for Disney owns the rights to that. And it used to be you just type up a letter or whatever or reach out to whoever your distributor is and says, hey, I I need to get these movies to run them. Now you can't. And suddenly distributors are just saying, no, we can't help you. And it's not just the fly and the omen. We're looking at old horror films from Fox, movies like Beneath the Planet of the Apes, Zardoz, The Day the Earth Still, the original Suspiria, you can't screen anymore. It's not great. And this only goes further because those aren't just old movies Fox owns. Suddenly... There's drive-in theaters around the country who run old theaters who are saying they can't get movies like Alien, Aliens, The Princess Bride, and Moulin Rouge. You can't get Fight Club anymore to screen. The Sound of Music, Deadpool uh, that just came out, The Revenant, The Simpsons movie, you can't get anymore. Suddenly, all of these movies can't be shown in theaters, whereas before they were. Not necessarily to the general public, but somebody was going and watching these things. This is an industry, something worth certainly talking about on a podcast. Retro screenings are not necessarily unimportant, and suddenly Disney is cutting it off at the legs. How do we feel about this? Is this, is this Disney tightening the reins to somehow figure out a way to capitalize on this? Or are they throwing movies in the Disney vault just like their old cartoons? <laughs> and is this ultimately going to be worse for cinema in general? What do you think?
1: What? well like we we have said about the disney vault before it, that is an entirely fabricated thing to create demand for a certain artificial demand for a movie and in this case while we said we're not going to talk about disney plus it could absolutely be because of disney plus so that it could. You, so people will subscribe and be able to see these you know the fox library on um disney plus because we as we know licensing ex- exclusivity is like the lifeblood of streaming services That's why everyone is trying to starve netflix of content you know they've lost uh, all the big shows like friends and the office and lots of film properties as well and so that this is disney going another step say no the only place you can see these films is on a streaming service you know because. While they, yeah, they make money by licensing those out. They want that subscriber money. They want that month to month, six ninety nine, seven ninety nine, every month for until kingdom come. And and they're more likely to get it if those films are on their streaming service and they're not, you know, licensing them out for screenings.
0: Yeah, I, I'm particularly frustrated frustrated by this because of, like you said, the Disney Vault, right? The Disney Vault was always this kind of obscure system of managing uh, supply and demand for your own movies, right? Disney would say, hey, Cinderella is available once every four years for two months or whatever. Get it while it's hot. Otherwise, we're not selling it and you can't find it. And that wasn't awesome, but it seems to have got Disney a ways, certainly. Look where they're at now. But for me, I I didn't like the Disney Vault, but I didn't mind it because it was like, well, it's just Disney movies, right? It's just children's films and family fun films, and there's a million of those. It's fine. Suddenly, you're adding in the 21st Century Fox library, which is very diverse and has a lot of terrible movies, but also has a lot of very good films. Films that aren't necessarily limited to families and friends, right? Films that can be about ideas that are much more complex than the Lone Ranger riding in to save the day, or a cartoon hero, uh, saving the princess. You know, suddenly we're getting into things that are thoughtful and meaningful, and movies that just seem to have a bit more of an impact than Disney than than Disney films proper, right? Um, I, I mean, it's it's a it's a it's a very immature example, but when I was in college, like most kids in college, I thought Fight Club was the coolest movie ever. Um, seeing that now suddenly, hey, you can't really get that. At least in retro theaters, uh, I'm sure you can still buy the DVD. But like, that's a bummer because that movie was influential to me, and might be influential to somebody else in the future. Taking these off the table means it's just harder for people to get them, and I don't, I don't necessarily think that's a good thing. I get. Disney makes money,
1: but, like, at what cost? Right. Well, well, and there's another interesting kind of uh, point for that this article brings up is that it's not just the streaming service. It's also the fact of just how it's doing business and how it wants to do its theater business, which is new titles. And any screen that's being taken up by an old title is one fewer screen for something like Star Wars or anything, name any other... <laughs> one of their releases that comes out. So because Disney releases so many films and now they own so many films throughout the year, it's essentially competing with, with itself if it's putting out retro screening. So they would rather you pay full price to see a new release than go see a retro screening, even if they own it.
0: Sure. And you're right. Like, it could be much easier for them to manage, right? They could very easily say, okay, we're going to be the ones in charge of retro screenings now, and we're going to do them, and we're going to make our dime. And I guess I wouldn't mind so much then, as long as they keep happening. Like, I I think it's a really cool thing that whenever I go buy a ticket at the movies, almost always now there's some kind of retro screening running soon. Yesterday, I went and saw The Lighthouse at Alamo. That night, they were running Ghostbusters at 7 o'clock. That's neat. And that's not a bad thing. Like, I think it's really cool that movies can kind of transcend time a little bit. And we can have these kind of cultural conversations um, about very human things despite when they were made or who they were made by, right? It's it's an art, it's an it's a piece of art. And I can go experience Ghostbusters and, and have this great, wonderful feeling uh, that people had all the way back in the 80s when it came out. But now... I can't do that as much anymore and that's a bummer so I don't know I'm not I'm not real pleased by this I guess Um, but at the same time hopefully Disney realizes there's a demand for this stuff and capitalizes in an effective way maybe like on something like Disney Plus
1: right yeah it'll be interesting to see what happens down the line like you said in for the in terms of art and bold cinema and things like we've seen you know we went and saw The Shining and we've seen 2001 in this in the theater I, I definitely am a big fan of retro screening so it, it's a little worrying that a lot of these big hits just won't be available because it's like I said they'd rather make sure they they have a new release and are pushing out you know Sony or Universal or any of their competitors
0: sure I think I think ultimately this is a cautionary tale um, on both sides, right? On the one hand, small theaters, you know, they, they 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 probably survive on retro screenings. You know, I know places like the Texas Theater, like that's a really big part of what they're doing. That's huge, you know. And that little that extra six hundred bucks or thousand dollars or whatever that they get from running retro movies that week, like, might be enough to keep them open another week. And if Disney's taking that option off the table, like, that's that arguably means less movies, less movie theaters. And that's not great, um, especially for our little movie podcast. On the other side of the fence, uh, Disney might love this Disney Vault idea, but I don't know a whole lot of people who are under the age of like 21 who are innately familiar with most of the Disney library. Most of them don't know it. Most of them haven't seen these movies because how (laughs) would they? You couldn't go buy them back in the day. You couldn't go get Cinderella or Snow White, so they just never saw them. So... Disney might have capitalized on a generation who's familiar with their films, but you've also alienated a lot of new kids who haven't seen what you're doing yet.
1: Mm-hmm. So
0: just a, yeah, a cautionary tale, you know, <laughs> where, wherever that might go. Yeah. Uh, and with that, we should probably move on to our last film. I think we're going to need the time to talk about it. Andy's mm-hmm. going to be taking the summary on this one. Andy, please take it away.
1: Parasite. Jessica, 외동딸 Illinois,
0: Chicago
1: So this is the latest film by Korean director uh, Bong Joon-ho, who previously did uh, Okja on Netflix, which we reviewed on the show, as well as Snowpiercer, and was also uh, really well known for a horror film called The Host, uh, which I never saw, actually. But I've heard excellent things. Anyways, his latest film *Parasite* we've heard a lot of buzz about, and it's a story of a poor family, uh, the the Kim family, who lives in poverty. They have this; they live in the kind of this basement apartment in Korea. And one day, the their son, uh, sorry, there's a lot of (laughs) names to uh, to see here. Yes, it's true. um, Who is uh, Ki Woo Kim? He. Oh gosh, there's so many names. I'm going to mess up the names. Anyways, he... Honest,
0: honestly, I when I was thinking about this rundown, I was just going to call them like the father, the son, yeah. the mother, the daughter. Like if you want to just go to that, it's fine. It's a foreign language film, Le- right? Like it's Let's do that. Yeah,
1: let's. I feel bad easy. for doing that, but I, I have Me to too. practice these uh, names. Anyways, yes. the son gets the opportunity uh, to go and tutor a wealthy family uh, to tutor their daughter in English. Uh, a friend of his is going to study abroad; he needs a replacement, so he says, "Hey, you know, you can come teach these people." And he says, "Well, I'm not I'm not a university student; I don't have a you know a degree or any of that." And he's like, "Oh no, just they're wealthy and and simple. You know, they're gullible. Just just look the part, and you'll be fine." Um, so the son gets in. He meets the family. He impresses them with with their uh, let with his lesson, his command of the English language, and his teaching methods. They immediately sign him up for come three days a week, uh, teach our daughter uh, English. And so he's you know got a good thing going. And then you know they discover that the the rich family also has a son who's, who they think is like an artistic genius, but he needs, he's a, he's a handful and he needs an art teacher. And he says, well, you know, I have a friend of a friend of a friend who's an incredible art teacher. Let me uh, bring her. This is of course his sister. So she, so she kind of forges her way into the family as well and gets hired and uh, looks after the kid and, and helps guide his art. And so eventually what you have is this big con going on where this, poor family gets completely employed by the very wealthy family, the park family. Um, and you have w- the beginnings of, of kind of a dark, dark comedy. That's our main setup. Um, the whole family kind of running this con on this, a uh, wealthier family. And it, that's our setup. i I don't want to say too much more. Uh, I'll, I'll wait for my opinion. Zach, what did you think?
0: Um, Man, I, I it, it's important I kind of preface this. I'm coming in real hot after seeing this film. I have not had time to process. Uh, I, I drove straight from the theater to come <laughs> do this podcast, and I was still an hour late. Andy was cool enough to keep recording with me. So um, my thoughts are very fresh on this movie. I, I haven't had time to really sit on it. And with that uh, disclaimer, this movie is great. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I don't mean like, oh yeah, it's, Zach says it's pretty good. Go to the theater and see it with your friends. I mean great like you think of great films. Great. Like Tarantino or Spielberg great. It is real good, man. It is real good. Like this movie hit credits and I genuinely was thinking like this might be a modern masterpiece. <laughs> it is such good storytelling and it is so fascinating and watching these characters dance across a moral compass all throughout the film and... Uh, is so engaging I I love the culture and the setting and the characters and everything about it is so tight and well put together it is it is masterful stuff I love this movie Uh, Andy what did you think of Parasite?
1: So, I was blown away by it too. This has been a really good weekend at the movies because like i said the the lighthouse is one of the best films of the year and and so is this so it's it's strange to get both of them on the same weekend and then they're and they're both very different so what makes Parasite so intriguing the first half, like I said, is this big con of getting the family hired completely on it in the employee of this much wealthier uh, family because there's a lot of um like I said it's a dark comedy there's a lot of uh Kind, they deceive this family because they're they're not qualified to do any of the things that they're doing. But they, it's the epitome of fake it till you make it. Well, they look the part. They practice. They 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 go through several of their schemes or scandals at home um, with each, each other, saying, "Okay, when he says this, to put this thing there, so he'll think this, and then um, so that it's this brilliantly orchestrated plan to uh, get get this family hired and get the get them out of you know because they're a very poor family, um, and But then, about halfway through the film, there's an incident where things kind of take a a different... Uh, turn and uh, I don't want to go into any of that because it's a really brilliant part of the the film but there's so much going on and even just that the part that I mentioned the uh, this kind of scam they do at the beginning the the music is incredible the cinematography it's cut so tightly like it, it seems to fly by really quickly a lot happens but you're you're with it the the entire way like you know what's exactly what's going on the whole time
0: yeah, there were multiple times I thought this film was going to end. And and towards the end of the movie, it's almost like a Return of the King situation. Like, it could have ended three or four times before it did. But, like, it's so engaging that way that it just keeps you in your seat. You just, you, you gotta see more. Um, you gotta see what's coming next. I I would say this this movie, like The Lighthouse, is almost like a mystery on its face. Because you're right, like, you're, you kind of have to figure out what's happening along with the characters. And, like, that's part of the charm, but... Man, let's 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 dive into the characters first. I think that's really where the, the core of the film is. We have really these these two families that are foils of each other, right? We have the the key 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 types, I think is there, and it's a terrible way to say there. Sorry. Word. Kim sure so Kim
1: correctly. is Kim is their last name. That's the last name.
0: Kim is their last name, right? So we have the Kims uh, who are very poor, who live in the poorest part of town in a sub-basement. Uh, and we have the Parks, who are very rich and live way up on the hill and have everything and live in like a heaven of a house. Uh, their house is primarily the setting for the film. It is a very cool uh, uh, kind of place it's put together. And we'll talk about kind of the, the architecture and stuff later. Um, but these two families are foils for each other, right? They're both families of four. They both have a mother, a father, a son, and a daughter. Uh, they're both similarly structured and aged the parks are a little younger and maybe a little bit less knowledgeable of the world than mm-hmm. the kim's but the kim's have been around the bend they are they're living down in the dumps and they know it and they're willing to do whatever it takes to get out of that but they stick together and they're hard working uh, uh and they they they're willing to really stick themselves out there to make something work so when one of them gets an opportunity when the son gets an opportunity to be a college tutor even though he didn't graduate college, he's like, Well, I should I should do it, right? Because I we need the money, and how are we gonna eat and we can barely afford to live here as it is? And mm-hmm. and and then when his sister has the opportunity to make money, he's like, Well, I should bring her in too, of course. And we're on the side of our characters, even though they're doing the wrong thing, even though they're they're slowly working their way into being a part of the Park family in a dishonest manner and kind of fooling these people you believe in them because you want to root for them. You want them to be successful and get out of like this hole they're stuck in. They're smart and they're, they're educated and they're actually really skilled in what they can do. They just haven't been given a chance. And so dishonest or not working their way into the park family is that chance. And then, like you said, about halfway through the movie, suddenly, suddenly parasite takes a turn and the screws starting to tighten a little bit. And you realize, Oh, our characters might be a little bit trapped in, the, in this guise that they've that they've created for themselves, they, they might have gone too far. And they start to get caught in their own web a little bit, and that's when the mystery starts to unfold. And suddenly, our characters have to be something they're not, and it's so engaging. Like, it, 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 being a foreign language film that I don't speak a language in in a culture I'm not familiar with, it, it felt so human and real. Um it was so cool.
1: Yeah, the the title Parasite is very interesting because the the Kim family while they yes, they're dishonest about getting employed uh, by the ways they get employed by this w- wealthy family. Once they do, they they do work really hard in what they're doing. The the you know, the son is ac- he is tutoring the daughter in English. The the daughter is helping the the, the wealthy people's son uh it, to be a better artist and to be in, cause he's kind of a wild child. The, the father, he gets, uh, uh, the Kim household father gets hired as the driver and he does the driving and then they get their mother hired as, as the housekeeper. And so it's, they are doing these jobs. It's just once they, they have the opportunity to actually work hard, they do great. So it's like I said, it's very interesting. Uh, the title, uh, parasite to see who, who is actually preying on whom. Um, go ahead.
0: No, I, I, I was going to yeah, jump in and, and, and say, yes, uh, there is very much a parasitic relationship uh, with these people. And what's fascinating about Parasite is there aren't necessarily heroes in this film and there aren't necessarily villains either. Every character like the lighthouse is severely flawed um, for the majority of the film. The Kim family is, yeah, they're, they're willing to essentially not qualified people out of their positions in a dishonest manner and lie their way into this house to survive. That's not a good thing that they do that, but they work hard and they're devoted and they have a plan and they stick together and their family through and through. And like that has moral value. So you believe in them, even though they're doing the wrong thing, the park family who seems like they're getting taken advantage of for their goodwill. On the one hand, you kind of feel sorry for them. On the other hand, like there's some pretty clear, like class uh, divides there and, and, Intentionally or not, uh, it's made clear that the Park family kind of has some hot takes about people who live in poverty. Uh, and, and that ends up being a real sticking point throughout the latter half of the film. Um, not anybody's really good in this movie and nobody's really bad either. You're kind of left to figure it out on your own, follow your own moral compass.
1: Yeah. And inequality is the uh, is the villain here. And it's very much about economic inequality and class warfare, but it's also about just the inherent inequality that happens between uh, you know wealthy and non-wealthy people about this like I'm better than you or I own you because I have more money and like you know it the movie kind of stretches to show like inequality is more than just the amount of money that each group is making. It's how, how we, you treat and perceive um, the, each other. There's a really great, great scene where uh, the Kim family is being asked to like come up and work, work on a weekend and they really don't want to. And the uh, <clears throat> Mr. Park keeps saying, well, you know, you're getting paid, you're getting paid extra, you're getting paid overtime. Like, you know, why aren't like cheer up? And it's just so, but it's like, that's not the point. The money's not the point. It's the complete lack of respect. Of another person because of they're in your employer because they're not as as wealthy um, as you.
0: Right, the Kim family on the one hand is willing to lie and cheat and steal to get to the top. On the other hand, like they just want a fair shake. They just they just want to be treated like everybody else. You know, they 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 have just been downtrodden and and despite their efforts and how hard they work and how smart they are, they just can't catch a break. And like that's ultimately all they're chasing here is just to be treated the same and they, they, they find that it's, it's particularly challenging to get there, especially when you lie, cheat and steal your way to the top. But I, I so much enjoyed how again, human it felt. I I wasn't stuck on it being in uh, a different language. Normally foreign language films. I struggle this one though. The script is so tight and the screenplay is so good that like you don't really get stuck on culture. The setting is so unique in being South Korea. Um, I don't know a whole lot about South Korea, but the story within is very modern. It's, it's very contemporary. Our characters have Wi-Fi and smartphones just like we do. And they text each other and they use Google maps, you know, and they, they have to, you know, they go to school and they have jobs and like this house they're in is very modern. It's very 2019, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like such a faraway place and it makes the story feel more real.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, uh, Bong Joon-ho has taken on kind of uh, social issues before Okja was very much a uh, about the environmentalism, uh, yeah. b- that film. And this one, like I said, is about uh, uh, economic inequality. And it, it, it's a very complex take. Like I said, it's not just about the money. It's about the respect and, and the pride or the lack of pride that... Um, you know, the, uh, the Kim family has because they, they are so poor. And one of the ways that that I wanted to touch on that this is really portrayed is in just the architecture itself of like literal from low to high, you know, the Kim family lives in this basement apartment, um, that's always in danger of being flooded because of, of rain. Um, and there's, there's a whole thing with the basement in the house and, you know, the basement, Versus the upper levels of the house, you know, the, it's an it's a literal kind of allegory for for the, uh, the rich versus poor and, and economic differences.
0: Yeah, and and I really enjoyed this one scene um, to kind of kind of highlight the divide in our, our, our characters feel in each other because of economic differences. There's a scene uh, towards the end of the first act when our um, a, a few of our characters are are drinking and being very honest with each other, and one of them says. You know well I think I, I think the mom in the park family is very nice and the mom in the Kim family says well she, yeah because she's rich she was raised to be nice because everything given to her was nice she's like if I was raised that way I'd be nice too like it's not it's not a matter of like who you are morally it's nurture versus nature and that's mm-hmm. so interesting to hear one family the rich family say no no no. Uh, you know, it's it's nature versus nurture. Poor people are like cockroaches. And the other family to say, no, it's just the way we've been treated. It's not who we are.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and you have these characters, just, just, again, just dancing across that line. One of them will do something that seems awful, and then there will be a reason that makes sense. And another one will do something that seems mild at first and ultimately leads to having bigger consequences. And, like, you have to just kind of guide yourself morally and see where you land on these people and by the end of the film I was so turned around and upside down like I, I didn't know I didn't know where to go
1: right yeah it, it's really incredible like there's his take on, on this last divide is like I said very complex and, and like I said the wealthy family is as you said morally not really any better in a lot of ways than uh, the Kim family
0: so I wanted to talk about tone a little bit and I definitely want to talk about setting um tonally i let's start there this movie the the first act of this film is almost like a comedy yeah it's like it's like it's like a backwards who done it it's like watching the bad guys in a mystery slide into their their roles and every time the Kim family kind of gets one over on the parks and has another member of the family join. I felt like I was sitting in the theater, twirling my like handlebar mustache, <laughs> like a villain. And it's so satisfying to watch because yeah, it's that, it's that class divide. It's the, it's, it's the underdog getting in, getting there. So, you know, Hey, I'm, I'm punching up to the first class, you know, and I'm, I'm making it happen. And it feels so great. There's times I was watching this film and grinning and laughing even at some of the things that are going on. Cause it plays like a comedy. And then, like the lighthouse about halfway through,
1: it just, <laughs>
0: it just starts to turn a little bit and you suddenly things start to come to light that weren't apparent before. And suddenly there's more going on under the scenes and our characters have to deal with it because they're in this position now where they're, they have no choice in order to maintain their lifestyle and what they want. They're forced to engage with this problem that really they're not qualified at all to have to solve. And suddenly Parasite takes a very, it takes on a very different role and it's suddenly suspenseful and mysterious and there's action and it, it turns into a whole thing and, like, man, it totally pulls you into that second and third act. Like, it really grabs you and drags you along. Like, well, if you thought that comedy stuff at the beginning was fun, <laughs> wait till you see this.
1: Yes, I uh, when I was watching it, I, I'm a big fan of Chan-wook Park who, of course, did uh, Old Boy and a number of other uh, South Korean classics. It, part of the film looks like something out of one of his films, and if you're familiar with with him, you'll know what that means. Very intense, very high energy. I don't want to get too much into it because it's so good, but it, it definitely, there are t- big tonal shifts, and, and like I said, they, they work so well. And the last thing I kind of wanted to say was, you know, we've mentioned that this is about class warfare. It's not just rich versus poor, but it also shows how this want for a better life often turns the poor against the poor like the the class fights within itself for scraps of the table
0: right Um, I don't know if there's a way I can talk about that without getting into where the film uh, starts to go so I'll I'll agree with you and move (laughs) past that but yes totally Um, I want to talk about the house for a second it it is as much a character as it is a setting in the film the the house is is, uh, like the Overlook Hotel in The Shining It, it is where most of the film is happening it is a fascinating place it's developed by in the world of the film anyway it's developed by some uh, eccentric developer who really has created kind of this beautiful canvas of a place to live that's so desirable to people like the Kim's to the parks they almost take it for granted this is just you know the place we live but to the Kim's this is paradise mm-hmm. it is it is somewhere with a backyard and a fence you know where, where you're you can be yourself and experience the world as you want and the Kims really get drawn to that more so the house than like the actual family and their lifestyle, I think. And that mm-hmm. uh, is an interesting turn, yeah. Because the first the first act is so much like family uh, against family here. The second act really kind of steps away from that and and looks at the bigger picture.
1: Yes, I, sorry, I agree. I don't. I don't really have much more to add. I, right, right, right. Yeah, <laughs> I know.
0: We're we're kind of running out of steam on this. Uh, the soundtrack is good uh, I don't want to say it's forgettable but I, I was just so focused on the visuals The cinematography is fantastic it's dark and it's locked down on a tripod like a David Fincher film it, it, it feels like an auteur kind of experience like you're watching a Tarantino or an Edgar Wright or a Spielberg like somebody who's really really nuanced and knows what they're doing behind the camera and it shows the presentation's outstanding I think we should probably move on to recommendations if you don't have anything else to add Andy <laughs>
1: yeah I think I'm ready
0: Andy, would you recommend Parasite? Uh,
1: Absolutely. Again, two in a row of uh, high recommendations. Uh, This is – I haven't seen a lot of foreign films this year, but this is definitely uh, the best one. It's an incredible film that takes on a tough subject in a complex way. And I'm always talking about this when when someone does want to address some sort of social justice is, you know, how subtle and how nuanced can you be and not just – Beat, beat people over the head with, this is wrong, you, you know, and this is what this film does. It makes you really think about these class divides and uh, the people on, on both sides. And on, on top of that, it's, like I said, the first act is very much a dark comedy. It's brilliantly edited. There's great, great performances, good music, and it's, like I said, the, then the second and third acts um, are really something special. So I, I definitely highly recommend uh, that you go out and see it.
0: Yeah, same here. Two thumbs way up. I think this one's a lot more accessible than something like The Lighthouse because it's not necessarily as niche in its presentation. It's, it, I guess if I had to put it in a category, I would say it's more like a thriller and a drama, uh, definitely with some comedy added. I wouldn't say it's like a hard horror, and I, I wouldn't necessarily say it's a hard mystery either, but it's a film that really, really gets you thinking. Um, it's really engaging. I, I Again, I think... The language is not too much to come over. It feels like a very natural story. It, I, watching this at some points, I was like, "This is probably going to be remade in America at some point, right?" Mm-hmm. Like somebody's just going to do this again, and it's going to not work nearly as well. But uh, two thumbs way up. This this movie is really cool. We'll keep an eye out for it on the top ten list uh, at the end of the year. And with that, we should probably wrap things up, man. What a week, Andy. Just good stuff.
1: Yeah, it really is.
0: Next week. Um You know, maybe not so great. Uh, We're going to be taking a look (laughs) at Terminator Dark Fate from producer James Cameron. And we're going to also look at Netflix's The King starring Timothy Chalamet and our boy Rob Pattinson is in that as well. So um, I'm interested to see what that's about. Word on the street is Timothy Chalamet is taking a break from acting after The King. So I'm sure that means it's good right because typically actors <laughs> take breaks when they're doing good um
1: <laughs> he's been in everything for like the last three years so and
0: he's good yeah i don't have any complaints So uh, we'll see what happens uh, if you enjoyed the show check out our website offscriptfilmreview.com check us out on facebook twitter instagram email us at mail at offscriptfilmreview.com but if you want to do anything for us the biggest thing you can do is just subscribe just hit the subscribe button and we're on our way. That's the biggest thing. And rate and review, if you can swing it. You know, uh, we, don't, we don't ask for much around here. But uh, thank you so much for listening from all of us at Offscript, the home of Bold Cinema. I'm Zach Lewis.
1: And I'm Dr. Draper.
0: Thanks for listening.